So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me? We're going to jump right in. Turn with me to the book of John, John chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, uh, if you're in need of one, there's some in the back there. Feel free to take one of those home with you today. Uh, If you're on a device, we'll be using the ESV this morning uh, so you can follow along with us. Well, as you're turning there, um, I want you to think about something with me. I know it's a little bit, a little bit early in the morning still, and maybe you haven't had your coffee, but I want you to think with me for a moment. I want you to think about what you did to get ready this morning to come here to gather together for corporate worship. All right, you probably, you woke up, maybe you did have your cup of coffee this morning. You got the kids all ready. And by you got the kids, I mean, thank you, moms. You got the kids already. You, you loaded up in the car. You made it here. You walked in. You were greeted by some greeters. And now here you are. Pretty, pretty simple process, right? Now, now imagine before doing all that, going to Bueller's, purchasing their nicest bottle of wine, then finding their, their best bag of flour. I'm not talking like home brand flour talking like like sifted by hipsters in the Himalayas, like that, that kind of flower. You know the one I'm talking about. You get that, and you go to the nearest sheep farm, and you purchase their best sheep, and you load up your wine, and your flour, and your sheep, and your kids, and I know it's starting to sound like a National Lampoon's movie. You load everything up, you drive here, you give me your wine and your flour, but I'm taking the flour back to Ronnie for all of his baked good posts. You give me all that, you give your sheep to Scott Allen here, he sacrifices it. You ready for that? Okay. And now you're ready to come in and to worship corporately with us. These would have been the things that would have been required by the Jew to come and worship God at the temple. Not only this, but a laundry list of other requirements would need to be upheld daily to atone for their sin and sustain their ability to come to the temple in a stance of peace with God. Festivals always observed, sacrificial rituals and daily sacrifices were all needed for them to worship the Father. I wonder how many of us this morning would be here if those things were still required of us to come and gather together for worship. I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear the word worship. Worship is a, uh, it's a word that we talk a lot about in the church, as it should be, because it gets used a lot in scripture, but, but what does it mean? Do you, do you maybe think of your favorite worship song or your favorite worship band? Yes, we have music that is specifically labeled as worship music. We have worship services. That's, that's what we're doing here this morning. Do you think about a room full of people raising their voices and lifting their hands and all the lights and all the music and all the fog and the screens, basically exactly like what we did here this morning? Do you think about that when you think about worship? Because if I'm being honest, that is usually where my mind goes to when I think about worship. I think about singing. I think about music. And you know what? That is worship. But that is a form of worship. That is not where worship begins. Today we'll look at a passage that actually has a lot to say about worship. And interestingly enough, not once is singing mentioned. 
Not once is an instrument played or lights or fog talked about. I wonder how many of us this morning when we heard the word worship thought about a person. Specifically, did you think about Christ, the holiness of God that we just sang about this morning, revealed to us in the glory and the personhood of Jesus, the sacrifice of all sacrifices, who atoned for our sin once and for all, not just to get us to heaven, but to purify a people for his own possession and worship. So what is worship? Dr. R. Kent Hughes says this, he says, worship is the day in, day out living for Christ, the knees and the heart perpetually bent in devotion and service. One of my favorite preachers, John Piper, says this, worship is the term we use to cover all the acts of the heart and mind and body that intentionally express the infinite worth of God. So my hope for today is that this text helps to reform our thoughts so that when we hear worship, we think Jesus, how he sacrificed, how he lived a life of devotion and service in showing the infinite worth of God the Father and that it moves our hearts and understanding of worship outside of just what we do here together on Sunday, which is worship. But I pray that it moves it outside of just this hour and a half or two hours that we spend together on a Sunday and into the everyday moments of our lives. And because of Christ, it can. So if you're not already there, would you join me in John 4, verses 1 through 30? Follow along as I read. It's a little bit of a longer one this morning. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, verse eight. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. 
Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and they were coming to him. This is the inerrant word of the Lord, church. Would you pray with me this morning that he does a work in our hearts to use this? Father, by your Holy Spirit, do a work in us this morning as we study your word. I pray that we would grow in love and affection for you and your holiness, which has been given to us in Christ, and that from it we would live everyday lives of worship that point towards your glory. Do this work in us today by your faithfulness. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, there are a, a few stories in John's gospel of Jesus that aren't found in any of the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. The one that we just read, Jesus and this woman of Samaria, and the one just a chapter before this, the story of Jesus and the religious Pharisee Nicodemus. Why did God want the apostle John to pen these stories of Jesus? If I have to take a stab at it, I believe that because it shows us that Christ came to be the sacrificial offering, the bridge between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man for both the one who believed that they were already holy and for the one that knew that they weren't. It shows us that Jesus came to be the spirit of God and both the hyper-religious Jew who needed to be reborn and the outcast of all outcasts who needed her, her thirst eternally quenched by the one true spirit of God. These texts show us by who every person of God is brought into an eternity of worship, which is Christ alone. And if Christ is the one by whom all must come to God in worship, then we should be growing in our love and our understanding of who he is and what he has accomplished for us. So in John 4, I want to start out this morning by just observing the qualities of who Jesus is so that we then have a grasp on our response to his greatness, which, which is worship. So if you're taking notes, if you're a note taker, these are the things that I want to observe in the beginning of this text. Three things. Jesus sovereignly intentional. Jesus graciously human and Jesus holistically greater. Jesus sovereignly intentional, Jesus graciously human, and Jesus holistically greater. Jesus sovereignly intentional. In verse one, John says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, 
Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. We should always be asking questions of the text, like why did Jesus leave Judea and depart for Galilee? And I know that it says there that it was because he found out that the Pharisees knew that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John the Baptist, but what does that mean? We need, to, we need to go deeper with that. If we just read that at face value, it would appear that Jesus actually fled out of fear. So is John saying that? Is he saying that Jesus fled out of fear or, or that he doesn't want to offend anyone so he's just gonna move it on down the road? Basically, was Jesus taken off guard is the question that we should be asking here. What does John mean when he says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria? I mean, was Jesus physically confined to traveling this way? And if so, is it then just by chance that Jesus has this meeting with this Samaritan woman at the well? I don't think it is. I don't think that because if we look back into chapter three, we would see what John the Baptist says about Jesus. If you look there with me, chapter three, verse 35, he says, the father, meaning God, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Meaning Jesus is not taken aback by anything. He doesn't just almost fall into the hands of the Pharisees here. He's not surprised by them finding out that he's baptizing and making more disciples than John. This is part of the will of God that has been fully revealed to him. And it makes our understanding of what Jesus is about to do, or at least it should, that much greater. To know that he is not aimlessly running away from anybody. He is sovereignly and purposefully going to somebody. He is headed towards a divine appointment set and forth by his father. The word that's used here for had to pass is day, D-E-I. And it means to be necessary. Necessary in the sense that it's actually a moral obligation in your gut that you cannot help but follow. How could it be necessary outside of God sovereignly willing it to be? Was this the only route to Galilee? It was certainly the fastest. But there were other ways to get to Galilee. You could go east, you could cross the Jordan River and head north. And many Jews, especially rabbis, would have purposely taken this way because the Samaritans were viewed as ceremonially unclean people. Samaria was an area that was actually conquered by the Assyrians sometime in the 8th century. And many Jews remained there, but they were forced to intermarry and repopulate with idolaters from other nations. And since that time, they were then viewed as, as half-breeds, religious mutts. They used a different Bible than the Jewish people. They worshiped God on a different temple than the Jewish people. And there was a massive amount of rivalry and just downright hatred for these people. It should strike us then that Jesus purposefully heads for Galilee via this route. And he not only passes through Samaria, but about halfway into his trip, he stops there. And this is where we see Jesus' gracious humanity. Jesus, graciously human. 
In verse 5, chapter 4, he comes to the town of Samaria called Sakar. And Jacob's well was there, and wearied as he was from his journey, he stops to rest. It was about the sixth hour. Now, this would, this would be around noon, so midday. And most of the women of the town would have either come early in the morning or in the evening in groups when it was cooler. All right? Nobody comes to the well midday. This is well known, except for those who are considered outcasts even among their own people. Jesus comes to the well, and he has no bucket. He has no rope. He has nothing to draw water with. Did he make a mistake? Was he unprepared? No. He doesn't need one. In his sovereignty, he knows what is about to take place. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus says to her, give me a drink. We need to understand what's going on here. This woman would have been so taken off guard by not only a Jew asking her for a drink, but a Jewish man. No way. This would not have happened. I mean, she is coming to the well to get water to avoid her own people who see her as an outcast. That's why she's coming to carry heavy jugs of water at the hottest part of the day. She thinks, I'm good. I'm, I'm safe. Nobody will be there. Not only is someone there, but someone who she believes sees her as even more unclean, even more of an outcast than her own people do. And he asks her for a drink. Jesus meets her on the commonality of her humanity, of his weariness, and he's not only talking to her, he asks her for water so that his physical thirst may be quenched. The savior of all humanity graciously meets this unrighteous woman where she is at. And not only is he willing to just be around her, but to take on her uncleanliness by putting something into his body of which she has touched. This is insane. This would have been so crazy to this woman. She was probably thinking, this guy is off of his rocker. But he's not crazy. It's Jesus coming to her and relating to her as a human being, showing her the same compassion and the same love that he has shown us by revealing himself to her. He asked her for a drink. And in her response, you feel the racial tension of the day. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink? In verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. If you knew the gift of God... Jesus is saying to her, if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you wouldn't be surprised. You wouldn't be thinking that I was insane. You wouldn't be thinking at all about what I could give to you, but sorry, about what you could give to me, but what I could give to you. You would be thinking about the salvation that I gave, about living water, the Holy Spirit welling up inside of you for not just a moment of satisfaction, but for an eternity of worship. And she clearly has no clue. So in verse 11, she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. I can imagine that in true human form, her tone is just a little condescending here. She's basically playing the my father is better than your father card, and you can't really play that game with a son of God. But again, she does not yet know that she is talking to the son of God. And so do you see what she's doing here? She's questioning Jesus's goodness. How good are you, sir? I mean, you think you have something better to offer me? Show me. I mean, you aren't even prepared to come and gather water here, and you think that you have water to give me that's better than this water? Yes, he does. And Jesus shows her that he is holistically greater. Jesus, holistically greater. He shows her that he is greater than Jacob or any fathers before him. But notice how he does it. The compassion and gentleness that our Savior shows her He doesn't track attacker. He doesn't say, listen up, you fool. I am better, and you better recognize. No. He he offers her something that actually is better. She doesn't know it yet, but, but he's offering the same thing that he has given to all believers, all of us, himself. Jesus said to her in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She wants the better water. She wants what Jesus has to offer, but she doesn't want him. What an example of the condition of humanity, of us. Jesus offers himself, and like we so often do in our sinfulness, our desire misses the blesser for his blessings. She doesn't want Jesus yet, but Jesus wants her. So in verse 16, he says, go, call your husband and come here. Jesus knows He knows her story. He knows that she is not going to answer this question fully. But what he's doing in his kindness is revealing her sin to her. 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. We see in Mark 1 at the beginning of Jesus' ministry Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as Jesus goes about his ministry, everything he does is targeted to this end. This is what is happening here. He's calling this woman of Samaria who has been labeled as an adulterous outcast to repent and believe so that instead of living her own sinful desire, or to put it another way, her self-worship, She can instead worship and glorify God through Christ. This is the same thing that Jesus calls each of us out of and into. I don't think that this story is just about us acting more like Christ by being better evangelists. 
going after the outcasts in our lives, visiting the wells that we normally wouldn't. Those are, those are good things. Don't hear me saying that those are bad things. Those are, those are good things, and I think that they're even in here. I just don't think that they're the major thrust of this text because we are not Jesus in this story. We're the woman. And I think this story shows us the condition of our sinful hearts and how we don't seek God, but rather he seeks us through Christ. Jesus presents himself to us and he says, come, come. The Father is seeking people to worship him. Come worship the Father in spirit and truth. Repent and believe in me. Jesus says in verse 23, we see that he says, the Father is looking for worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. And what he means is that we worship God through God, through him, through the Holy Spirit that is given to each believer who has been bought by the blood of Christ. And the next verse, he says, God is spirit. And in John 14, Jesus tells his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Jesus is saying, nobody knows God the Father except through God the Son, and therefore nobody worships God except through me. Jesus calls us to worship. Same way that he is calling this woman to worship. Here are three ways that Jesus calls us to worship in this text. Three things that are essential in our daily moment-by-moment worship to God that without, we will not live lives with our knees and hearts perpetually bent in devotion. That without, we will not desire to express the infinite worth of God through Christ. So firstly, we must recognize Jesus as God. We must recognize Jesus as God. Second, we must repent of the sin that he reveals to us. And third, we must retell of his greatness. So we must recognize Jesus as God. We must repent of the sin that he reveals to us. And we must retell of his greatness. We must recognize Jesus as God. Some friends of mine uh, and I, we, a few years back, we went to uh, Blossom Music uh, for a concert one night. Some of you have probably been there before. It was one of my favorite musicians at the time. Don't hold it against me, Jack Johnson. And, uh, and we got there a little late. And if, you, if you've ever been to Blossom, it is not somewhere that you want to be late to because you end up parking out in the middle of nowhere and hoofing it like 95 miles all the way up to the front. And you're carrying, you know, if you get seats on the grass, you're carrying your chairs and your blankets and everything else. And uh, we get there. And when we get out of the car, we can all hear that the band, the first band has already begun. And so we're booking it. So we get up there, we hand our tickets, we walk in. People are flooding through because it started. And uh, there's this little acoustic jam band off to the side as soon as we walk in. And, uh, and everybody's flying by them, including my friends. But I stopped for a minute just to watch them because they were really, really good. And as I'm standing there, I'm, I'm looking at the guy that's playing acoustic. And I'm thinking, man, this guy... He's so good, and he just looks so familiar. But he's wearing this ratty T-shirt and uh, these shorts that looked like 
something he painted his kitchen in. And, uh, and he's got a ball cap pulled down over his face. And I stood there for a few minutes and listened to a few songs, trying to figure out who this guy was, and I couldn't. So I, I proceeded in, went and found my friends, and the first band finished up and did a quick stage swap. And, you know, now it's time for what we've came for, Jack Johnson. And out on the stage, watch this dude in that ratty-looking T-shirt and those shorts that are covered in paint and that ball cap pulled down. He lifts up his ball cap and he says, hey, I'm Jack Johnson. And he puts his hat back on and starts to play. And I'm freaking out, okay? I'm, I'm telling my friends, I'm like, guys, that was Jack Johnson out there. They're like, yeah, sure it was, Scott. That was not Jack Johnson. Like, I think this blue cloud of smoke is getting to you. Uh, I, I, that was not Jack Johnson, man. And I was like, no, I promise you, it was Jack Johnson. So Jack plays a few songs, and he goes, he stops, and he goes, everybody enjoy the night, and of course everybody, ah, yeah, it's so great. And he goes, well, not many of you enjoyed the concert I was putting on out front, so I hope you enjoy this one tonight, and he keeps playing, and my friends look at me, and they're like, dude, that was Jack Johnson. <laughs> I was like, I know, and they're like, I can't believe that we didn't recognize him. I was like, I stood five feet from him and didn't know it was him. Don't feel bad. But that did not change who he was. Me not recognizing Jack Johnson didn't make him any less Jack Johnson. Jesus doesn't stop being the son of God just because we do not recognize him to be. But worship does not take place unless we do. Jesus does not stop being the son of God just because we don't recognize him to be. But worship does not take place unless we do. I think that we read, we read stories like this and it's so baffling for us that Jesus, the son of God, is standing face to face with this woman. Think about that. Face to face with Jesus. And she doesn't right away recognize him as the savior. We think, come on lady, how can you not know this is Jesus? Like what the heck? But what about us? I wonder if Jesus stood face to face with you, would the Jesus that you've created in your mind actually look like the Jesus of scripture? Or would you be like me and my friends with our boy Jack? What I mean is, have you created a version of the Jesus that you want in your own mind? A version of Jesus that you form fit to your image instead of being conformed to the Jesus of scripture. Because being conformed to the image of Christ, that's worship. And so it doesn't matter if we lift our voices to God every Sunday, if we say the right things, if we, if we sing the right words, if we are not being conformed more into the image of Christ. That's why in a sermon about worship, I'm not talking about singing because singing does not magically equal worship. Singing songs, even directed to God, is not worship if you have a heart that hasn't been renewed by God. Isaiah prophesied of such a people. Isaiah 29, 13, he said, the Lord said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Many of us know that, that scripture. It's the part that comes after that that we should, we should shudder at. He says, they worship me in vain. I don't want my worship to be in vain. I don't want our worship to be in vain. 
church. And so I think the question that this woman at the well asks is an appropriate question for us to ask in our everyday walk with the Lord. Can this be the Christ? Is this ideology of Jesus that I have in my mind, the actual Jesus of scripture, or have I created a Jesus that looks a lot more like me, in which case what we actually end up doing is not worshiping God, but ourselves? Can this be the Christ? I think that's one of the most worshipful questions that we can ask. Because without truly knowing God the Son, we cannot truly worship God the Father. Secondly, we must repent of the sin that he reveals to us. We must have an ongoing battle against the sin that God reveals to us and saves us from. I know that that talking about sin might seem a little bit odd when we think about worship, but without an understanding of the severity of our own sinfulness, we won't have a very deep understanding of how infinitely great Jesus is. And we probably won't have much of a desire to repent of it or knowledge about its importance in our worship to God. Even to go as far to say that without a desire to repent of our sin to God, we cannot worship God because our heart hasn't been renewed to do so. I hope you've noticed this, that that every week we take time in our service to do this, to confess and to repent of our sin. And just so you know, we do this to lead you in knowing how to repent of your sin anywhere and everywhere. It's not some magic formula that you can only do in these two-minute sections of every Sunday. It's for every day. It's a model for us to be using in everyday moments of our life. It's a model of worship. Repentance is returning to God. It's turning away from sinful desire and towards a better, all-satisfying desire that expresses his infinite worth and it bends our hearts and our knees into deeper devotion. A life without repentance is not a life without worship, but it's not worship of God, but of self. And if we confess Christ as God, but refuse repentance, Paul says that we presume on the grace of God. Woe to us who claim Christ to be God the Son, but refuse to repent of our sin. Romans 2.4, Paul says, Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Repentance is worship because it brings our hearts back to God and it conforms them to knowing and declaring his infinite worth. So to worship God, we must recognize Jesus as God. We must repent of the sin that he reveals to us. And finally, we must retell of his greatness. If God has so graciously revealed himself to us and given us the gift of faith to believe on his son alone for salvation, and he's revealed our sin to us and we have repented of it, and we are living lives of repentance, it's because we are his. 
It's because his spirit is causing us to do so and we now belong to him for an eternity of new life and worship. Yes, praise the Lord. And we should rightfully want to retell of his greatness because it's great. We have been brought from death to life. We've been given life, given life. We didn't take it from anyone. We didn't create it. We didn't seek it out. We were perfectly content in death before God saved us. There is nothing that you or I did for this new life. But Scott, I, I prayed a prayer a long time ago and I accepted Jesus into my heart. Scott, I, I come here every Sunday and I listen to that guy up there preach. I sing. Scott, I, I'm a good person. I'm not like that woman at the well. Except for you are. We all are. I am. And our greatest acts of goodness and our deepest depths of sinfulness outside of Christ are one and the same. It's all deadness. Ephesians 2, Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." If we were at one time dead in our trespasses and sins and we were also carrying out the desires of our bodies and our minds, then do you think that those desires just magically changed on their own one day? That you just up and decided, hey, you know what? I, I don't think I wanna be dead anymore. Let me, let me just make myself alive. Being dead in our sin was not us at one point getting what we didn't want. It was us very much so getting what we wanted. And what changed was not our want or worship of God. What changed was God's changing us, God's seeking us, God's loving us, God's wanting us. Ephesians 2, 4 says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And by grace, by grace, Seth Buckwalter, by grace, Scott Allen, by grace, Chris Lawson, you have been saved. Paul says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And it's only when we rightfully understand that work, only when we grasp the infinite worth of knowing who Jesus is as the Son of God, and we repent of our sin that his kindness reveals to us, only then will we desire to retell of his greatness with hearts of worship. Worship that moves into the everyday moments of our lives, knees and hearts perpetually bent in service and devotion, desiring to express the infinite worth of God the Father and God the Son, not just in the songs that we sing on Sunday morning, but in the everything that we say and do of every day. We have been made alive, church, 
And it's because we are alive in him that we can worship God anywhere and everywhere in spirit and truth now until one day, one day when Christ returns and we worship what we know face to face. Let's pray. Father, we look forward to and we pray with great expectancy for that day, a day that we will stand face to face with our Savior and worship you for the rest of eternity. That worship has already begun for your spirit lives in us who have trusted in Christ for salvation and he is doing a work in us, reforming us into the image of your son who worships you perfectly. What great news that we get to retell, that we have been brought from death to life, our sin paid for in full, our eternity secured. I pray that as we go out from here, our minds would be more aware of the opportunities we have to worship you in our day-to-day lives, from praising you for our morning coffee to thanking you for each time that we get in our car and we we make it safely to our destination. I pray that we would recognize your glory in the daily things that we deem as mundane. Give us hearts of worship.